did you say Planned Parenthood was one? Um, there were city agencies, for an example, the municipal visiting nurses um, made quite a contribution. They had services where they visited and all of those um, resources have um, just vanished. Um, I don't know what happened to the municipal visiting nurses. They had clinics in all areas where they gave prenatal care and postpartum care and follow-up for children, um, preschool children. But was this for Negro and white? Yes. And so how did they handle? Were they... They had separate Oh, they, separate clinics. Every, separate. Every it was all separate. Mm -hmm. Crazy. Okay. Um, Such a waste. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, in the hospitals that were available to the Negroes at that time, um, we were opening, it wasn't until the late 30s, I guess, at Homer G. Phillips. Yes, it was right. So and prior to that, they had what was known as City Hospital Number Two and City Hospital Number One, mm -hmm. and the whites went to Number One and Negroes went to Number Two, and then on a limited scale, they were accepted at private hospitals and at Barnes. They went to the clinic, but when they had a need for hospitalization, they had a section in the basement where they were hospitalized. And when you said they took them in a limited need or a limited amount, was that, uh, how, did, how did they screen, I mean, how did you happen, did they just take anybody who came in, or was it referred? I think referred? they were referred. So that was something special then? Yes. Mm -hmm. To be referred to Barnes. Right. Or to be accepted in there, um, or taken in there. Did you did you work with doctors? I mean, did you refer people to particular doctors, or did the doctors at that time have anything? Were you acquainted because of, uh, of your work with any? Uh, yes, it was gotten through, through, through work, work mm -hmm. you were because there were cases that the doctors would refer to the public agency. And then uh, the social workers in the clinics would refer cases. Did, did um, Negroes want to go to Negro doctors? or? Did they? They mostly had to. They mostly had to. 
and through the clinics they would come in contact with white doctors, those that went to Barnes or to Fermin de Lodge, but otherwise uh, they would not even come in contact with any white doctors. Uh, in past interviewing in the years before, uh, I sometimes have a sense that uh, um, before, I guess maybe Homer G. Phillips opened or something, that they, they there was a preference, that they were concerned, they felt safer or going to white doctors. Because they felt that they, they were the only ones who had the training and who knew. They weren't um, really exposed to the, the Negro doctors who would have come from Meharry Medical School, which is all black, and Howard University. But as the doctors um, came and they were able to see their proficiency, then they began to uh, support them. And then after um, the, what was it, 54, um, they began to go in larger numbers back to white doctors. Because there, there are a lot of um, people now who, who still do not trust the black doctors knowing what he's doing, which is unfortunate because uh, there's some whites and some blacks that don't know. Uh, Catherine, how was the black or the Negro social worker looked upon at that time? I mean, were you, it, it seems you might have been very rare in the 30s. They were, but um, they, they were accepted by, by the client, I think, much more. I don't think I ever heard of anyone who was not. There were some um, who felt that they would prefer white because the whites wouldn't know enough to... Wouldn't uh, know enough. Wouldn't know. They could, in other words, they could dupe a white one and they couldn't dupe a Negro. Oh, I see. So they would have preferred a, a white. A white. Mm -hmm. Oh, I was misunderstanding. I'm glad you... Um. There are a few of those, a few people who were not really being honest, mm -hmm. and they knew that they couldn't tell some of those stories <laughs> to a Negro, but they could confidence a white. The city changed, I suppose, when when there was an influx of, of uh, new people emigrating here from the south. 
in World War II. Yes. Did that have any effect on uh, what you did? Did the war years, was that any different? Made a few more jobs available. Yes. And. But I mean, in the sense that you saw people, did you, were there less problems at that time because there was work or? Um, not really, because um, where in there was some more work, the work was not um, that available, and Negroes were still picking up the jobs that uh, when they referred to as a bullet player. Excuse me. When the bullet pan opened, it took whites first, and then you had. Is it the small arms you're talking? Yes. Mm -hmm. And it it was a while before any Negroes were employed. And then you had the families that were upset by the removal of the male going to war and their families had to be subsidized and it brought a different family to the welfare roads. Um, different in the respect that... They had been independent people but with the wage earner taken, um, and until his um, benefits for dependents could be established. Um, would you like to speak about the the job that you did at, at the uh, Farrier Harris? And that was the, one of the most rewarding things that I ever did. I think to an extent, because I saw the job as one of trying to expand the horizon and to bring some degree of expanded living to people whose lives had been very mundane and just above extreme poverty. Then occasionally there would be a person who um, had lived comfortably all of their lives that you were still able to keep them. For an example, there was a woman there when I first went to work who was known fondly to everybody as Mrs. A. Mrs. A. <laughs> she had lost her vision, and of course at that time was near 90, or in her 90s. 
and she had taught sewing at Sumner High School. And she had been in the home for a couple of years when I went there to work. And I found out that she belonged to an organization that she had helped to find, found. And I was able to get her back in touch with them so that each month someone came for her and took her to the club meetings. That was most rewarding because I felt that people should continue to live even though they were in a nursing home. And uh, then I established a group of volunteers who would come into the home and do things with the residents. And I had, I first thought of the churches and I called a number of pastors and I asked if they would be interested in a different kind of missionary work for their women. And I told him what I had in mind. He gave me the name of a woman and I called her. They came once a month and did things with the residents. What kinds of things? Um, They would have um, entertainment. Sometimes they would do sewing projects. Sometimes they would just have programs. Uh, That kind of personal kind of activity. Then I was able to get a group of Girl Scouts who would uh, the first came and helped to decorate Christmas trees with them at Christmas time. Then on their Easter break vacation they would come and make Easter baskets with the residents. They would dye the eggs. I bought the eggs and the dye. And the kids would bring some candy. They would fix the baskets. And it was amazing the reaction of the oldsters to dyeing Easter eggs. Excited, they enjoyed it. I had no idea what, how these things would really um, develop, but they seemed to have been meaningful. And then, depending on the weather, we would have Easter egg hunts. That was fun for them. It really enhanced people's lives. Tried hard. Gave them to look, something to look forward to. Mm-hmm. And they and that was their reaction. Mm-hmm. 
But there was also something else that would come out. We had one Caucasian male at the home before I left. And he had been a great family man, but he had gotten to the place and he and his, his wife just couldn't handle him. And he had a son, and um, they brought him to the home. And the interview was interesting and pathetic, really. The preliminaries, I took care of him as patiently and as carefully as I could. And the son and the wife and the daughter came by my desk to say goodbye. They had said goodbye to him. And when they started out of the door, they said, he said, Mama, you're not going to leave me here with these niggers, are you? They went on. And I went over to him and I said, you're going to be here with us for a while. And I hope you will learn to like us. And he sat down, he didn't say anything more. A few minutes, the telephone rang. The son was calling to apologize and to try to assure me that that wasn't the way the family felt. And they did want him to stay. <laughs> that was one of the funniest things I think I had. Catherine, a number of things come to mind. I was going to ask you, just at somewhere at the point where you began to tell the story, was that a all Negro yes. home? Mm -hmm. um, why did they choose to to put him there? Because it was cheaper than any place that they knew. Um, also, I've been thinking, I've been listening to you, and I've been thinking about you. And you have impaired vision. I don't know uh, if that means that you can't see at all, or if you. I have a very limited amount. At that time, it was described as 20 over 200. But now, I'm sure it's much, much less. Can you tell what I am by, my, by looking? Can no. Okay. Mm -mm. I can't see your features at all anymore. Okay, but so can you say, can you tell if I'm black and white by sight? No. Mm -mm. So. It only would be by voice. By voice. Mm -hmm. uh, can you always tell, Catherine? I, I don't think I've made a mistake. <laughs> I was thinking of, in your judgment of people, if you couldn't see them. <laughs> uh, how would I know? How, how would we all be <laughs> if we... If we there are other, other 
didn't see the color of one's skin, as I'm saying. It would be a different world, wouldn't it? Yes. But you were about to say there are other ways. It's that's an even voice inflection and um, that would be the best um, and I suppose what one says too content um, thought but then that wouldn't be as sure as the actual timbre of the voice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I've heard people say that they don't. Uh, this, the first gentleman I interviewed, that people they act differently with um, people of the same color. They It's true for everybody. Would that be true? For it wouldn't be true of me. I wouldn't have any. No difference between the way I act. Um, some say St. Louis is a racially polarized city, that there are two separate societies. That racism is, there's that word, that racism is in the air that we breathe and the water we drink. And what are your feelings on, your thoughts and feelings on this statement? Maybe. I think people want it to be that way. Polarized. Yes. I think they um, make every, every effort to see that it is. And until we can do something with the real estate exchange, Um, and until we can do something with attitudes, something, what can we do to help the anger that seems to be embedded in the young, and that's both black and white, because the, the uh, rise of the hate groups, it's among the, the younger. And that, I think, is enhanced by the uh, uncertain economic um, status of the country. Mm -hmm. 
they're the ones that are threatened. They are threatened. You hear it now in all of the talk shows about the the old the old people. Um, they feel that they are being cheated. So then that I think Did is, the young people are being cheated? Yes. Mm -hmm. Because all of the benefits that they feel that the people should be dead are getting. And all of the um, benefits and the talk about the Medicare. Well, the oldsters are paying dearly for Medicare, whether they know it or not. Um, the youngsters don't know how much is being taken out of the checks each month. They don't. They don't see that at all. And I think, as I think back, it seems that hate groups thrive as the economy come, becomes less secure. That's, that's the way it has been. Um, what part of St. Louis seems like home to you? I've really been here all of my adult life. Is there a certain area? In between Enright and Cook, that's where I lived the longest. Yeah, right. mm -hmm. um, are there areas of St. Louis you will not enter? I have not thought of that because I don't wander around now like I used to because I don't see well enough to get out in the street by myself. Well, when, when you were able to... There wasn't any place that I didn't go. You went everywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. um, I visited, I had cases as far south as... Um, South, South Second, 7900 South, and then as far north as Taylor and Broadway. So I covered all in that area. And Where do you think? are the areas that are used 
you would least likely to see um, black and white people come together. You pretty much see them everywhere now. So you think that people do that interact? They are interacting more. more. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, some say St. Louis is the most northern city in the South. Do you feel that St. Louis is unique in its racial attitudes and experiences from other places? Not having lived anywhere else for so long, I wouldn't know okay. because. That's all right. Because. As I say, I've lived in St. Louis since I was 20, but 24, and I was in boarding school before that. Uh, how do you feel about race relations in St. Louis? Uh, how do you feel that attitudes, activities, and perceptions have changed about racial attitudes, not only yours, but other people's is a long question. What is different and when did it change? So, do you think that things have changed, people's attitudes? And how? I really don't think that, from my perspective, that they have changed because. I I went to a church that was not supposed to be segregated, but it was because I went to an all-Negro parish. But whenever the necessity arose, I went to other to the other churches in the denomination, and I still go. For an example, I especially like the service that is held at St. Michael and St. George on Good Friday. And instead of going to my parish church, that's where I go. And I've always gone to the cathedral whenever I wanted to. And during the lifetime and administration of Bishop Scarlet. I even sang solos down there on occasion. So I don't do that anymore because I'm too old to sing solos. <laughs> I, um, so at first things were closed and you went to the old? Well, even though I went to the Old Saints Church, mm -hmm. the other churches were really not closed. Yeah, that was a, that was a 
because they that were Episcopalian. Was, right, right. Not, not all things were open to people, though. No, they weren't. Is that correct or not? That's correct. Okay. Uh, what would not have been open for people of what denomination? I don't really know about other denominations. Okay. Yes, I think it's changed because with all of the insurance programs and Blue Cross and Blue Shield, I think that wherever the doctor is on the staff and there are most of the major hospitals now have some Negro staff members. So that that has changed since 1954, when um, desegregation seemed to be put in place. think it's a pipe dream and whether it the term melting pot seems to have um, been diffused and you rarely ever hear it but for people to just learn to be people and to be happy at wherever they are, There must have been some reason that God made us all. Maybe he had, uh, maybe he gave us more. Maybe he thought we could do better than we have. Gave us something to work for and work with, didn't he? Personally, 
has there been any? The trying to fuse my physical impairment with the first impairment of being of a minority. I had three things to fight. The visual impairment, the loss of, of good vision, being a woman and a Negro. And I don't feel that you feel you got much assistance. I didn't. I uh, think it could have been made more acceptable had I not been black. There have been tremendous strides made in that area since then because there are people working in the Wolfner Library. There are... Where is that? It's been moved. It's in Jefferson City now. Wolfner Library. It's a library for the blind and visually are or the, what did they call it, the visually impaired and handicapped. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Is that where the tapes come out of? Yes. I have an uncle who uh, I really had to push to, uh, to get those tapes. I had to push to get the tapes. No, I mean I had to push him to do it. I'm saying, I, but I had to push them. Um, push we, them? Yes. Explain. Um, they would not let me get tapes in the beginning because I did have some vision. And it was only after then I got the Braille books, but they are bulky, not very well kept. I mean, they're generally dirty in the cases that they used, the books came in. And they took up so much space that when I moved, I called the library and, no, I called the St. Louis Society for the Blind and Visually Impaired. And I made a pitch and I said, you have refused to let me have tapes, but by this time I am 80 and I feel that I am entitled to the tapes because my finger gets tired and gets sore from reading the Braille. That's how I got it. You really did have to wait. Sure, I had to wait. You couldn't get a doctor to uh, 
It was that I could see sun. Therefore, I had to use Braille. So, I'm sorry. There are times when it could have been a little easier, but I tried to make the best of whatever. And I say that self-pity does not help anyone. No, but there is a... And I, I would not be guilty. Uh, maybe your, your mama <laughs> lives in you <laughs> and your father. I have his patience. You have a strong, uh, a strong home life. Was that? Did that follow you through? Mm -hmm. it? I think so. Uh, if you had the power to change things, what would you do? In, in the respect of what we've been talking about. I would like to find a way to help people develop a personal self-respect. I think that if we could respect ourselves, things that people do, would not demoralize us. I wish they would have done it in a different way. I wish they would do it in a different way, but I'm not angry. You're sad. Hmm? Sad. Yes, I'm hurt. I'm saddened. You hurt for them? For them. You spent a lifetime trying to help. Um, and I'm sure you did. I'm sure you made a difference in many, many people. For, to give people something to look forward to and then to have that to look back on that they've done, like in the home. And then to know that they're going to do something again, you know, that they're part of something. 
to get out of the of the the, the home that they were in, the uh, the retirement home. Um, must have been very special. Um, if you have a um, well, you already said that really uh, um, that you would wish they would have more. I was thinking in terms of a message for for young people. What would you say to young people if you could tell them anything? What would you want for their future? It's hard to think of what might be said to make them listen. Well, if you had children, what might have you wanted to pass on to them? Self. Self-pride without arrogance. Is there something that maybe I haven't touched on that you've been thinking about that you might want to talk about or mention? the waterfront, but this um, thought of young people, I just wonder what would have made, there, there are so many questions I have in mind about the incident that occurred at some or the other week. The shooting? Yes. I um, have neglected to contact a friend who is there in a secretarial capacity. They sometimes have a closer pulse or than some of the more professionals, but I still wonder what, what in our society makes people so gun happy? I don't know. It, it's frightening. It is. There's so many things that go into all of this. Even the media plays a definitely great they part. play a role, and I, I just wonder what life would have been for me growing up, had I grown up in the world of television. We had the radio, 
that we didn't have a record player. My mother said, if you want to dance, you learn to play. And one of my sisters was very, very good. But um, the most that we got into the stories on radio and books, of course, we had access to. And the newspaper was edited. But all we did was go next door to Grandma's and we'd get Grandma's paper and read the Cats and Jammer Kids. But it was always torn out of our paper. As my mother said, we had enough mischievous ideas of our own. We didn't need to get any from the Cats and Jammer Kids. But society as a whole has changed so drastically through the medium of radio and television that it has made, and the movies. It has made life for parents trying to rear children very, very difficult. And life in the cities from the small towns. Very difficult. It is. Um. And instead of churches and synagogues and institutions trying to maintain a standard, they have watered down to the media. The media or the medium? Medium. Medium. Mm -hmm. All of these mm -hmm. books, radios, televisions, organizations, they, um, the anti-religious speak loud so then the religious pipe down and they don't say anything. All of them the same. I think the fear, there's so much fear That's of, of, uh, of each other and of speaking out and the repercussions and the consequences. That we, we let them take over. Yes. Um, the lady that does some work for me to, came today and she, uh, it was her birthday and we were visiting. We do a lot of talking. And she uh, said that she had seen how the media was playing up the fact that they were getting St. Louis ready if there were riots because oh, of the riots. Oh, yes, I heard all of that this morning on radio, Mr. Harmon. She said, well, then they were showing it on television, how oh. they were training people. And she said, if that, I wouldn't think that would make people. Want, want, 
want to see how they can get around it. Yeah, but the idea, I, I said, I know, when I saw that, it crossed my mind, too, and I, why didn't they have people of uh, different people in the community get up and say something calming or, mm -hmm. or you know, make us think instead of showing us what they're going to do if... And I think that it Only gives gives the bad yeah, the mind. Put you in that <coughs> frame. Mm -hmm. So um, it's like I don't think they do the right the appeal to the best in us. No, they don't. Um, one last question, or one more question. I've had the opportunity to just sit here and observe you, of course. Um, and you are a beautiful woman. You're not, I'm sure I'm not the first person to say that. Uh, you are also um, uh, very pale in complexion. And I was wondering if you would like to comment on the differences that might have made or what role you think that and I use the word Negro because you referred to that on the telephone, and that's the time we were talking about, but you said that you preferred that word to American. Also in American, you are, when I asked you how you like to be identified, you said American or, or Negro, and yet you have used the term black as we've spoken today. But um, how did the... Um, what role does the, the color within the color make? Or what, what role does it play? I don't think it it, it has played any in, in my life. I've just gone around as a Negro and lived in a segregated community without um, having it play too great a part. Well, do you have anything you want to ask me, Catherine? <laughs> uh, I'm just curious as to what drew you into this line of work. What drew me into mm -hmm. this, you mean doing oral Interviews, yes. Mm -hmm. um, I have always been, I suppose I could turn the tape off. I don't need to be on the tape for this, but I'll be happy to answer your question. So I do want to thank you so much for, for uh, giving me your time, and I've enjoyed listening to you. Um, I have said said thank you, and now I have replugged everything because um, Catherine told me a story that I liked, and I uh, wanted to record it. And Catherine, we were talking about um, I was reading you the questions um, that I had prepared and asking you about them, and and you gave me an example of um, how your mother taught you something and. You were little and you were about, all at home. About difference in different people. 
and we ran into the kitchen and said, Mama, there's a white man at the door. And my mother turned around and looked down on us. She said, there is a man at the door. Mm. I always remember, remember that, story, that. that incident, right? Yes. Well, um, that's, that's it. I don't need to say anything. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Um, this is the second interview with Catherine Weston, and today is um, Tuesday, the 27th of April. And Catherine, you will be 84 tomorrow. So happy birthday on the tape. <laughs> um, Thank you. You're welcome. Um, I, I thought we'd. I'd ask you a little bit more about your mother um, and maybe about her influence on you and uh, if and your parents um, maybe thoughts about your future <laughs> um, choice your choice of, of what you did in later life but uh, was your mother born in, in Tarboro? Yes. And she was the second of three children. Uh -huh. Her father was an Episcopal priest. Also? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. And her mother, of course, was a school teacher. Uh, my grandmother and grandfather were educated at an Episcopal school. St. Augustine's in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm sorry, there we go. Um, educated, I think that's what My grandparents were educated at St. Augustine's and so were my parents. Mm -hmm. uh, they both met my grandparents met at St. Augustine's, and so did my father and mother. And so that uh, even though my grand my grandparents close to the civil um, the school opened shortly after the close of the Civil War. It was started by the Episcopal Church for the education of the Negroes. Some of them were free people and some of them, of course, were slaves. Um, I don't know much about my grandfather nor my father's background for that matter, but my grandmother, or my paternal grandparents were not slaves. Paternal? My mother's mother. Oh, maternal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But they were both educated by the Episcopal Church. 
so that my mother came out of the same background and uh, her education prepared her for teaching. Was the uh, St. Augustine's school started by whites or blacks? Whites. Whites. The there were no blacks uh, with any resources at that time. Mm -hmm. The school was started for blacks. So that's where she got her education. And then later she attended um, Columbia University and the education system in North Carolina. Columbia University in New York? Yes. There was no such thing as lifetime certification. Every five years you had to return to some school of higher learning. Was that for everyone? Everyone. Mm -hmm. It's not a bad thing. No. Mm -mm. So then my mother would go to summer school in the summers to keep up her certification and to, for her own personal gratification, I guess. Because she continued then after she retired, she tutored. And when she died, Teenagers came to pay their respects to the family, and I learned they her nickname was the Great One. The Great One. I had a feeling. <laughs> yeah. I had a feeling that uh, people looked up to her. Um, she was a strong character. Was and, I'm sorry. As far as my choice of vocation, both my mother and father, I think, were greatly disappointed because they thought I should have been a teacher. Just because all of them had taught. I uh, chose to go into social work. Why did you choose that, Kathy? I was impressed as a very young child by the poverty of people that I saw, sharecroppers, and the fact that women would come in to see my parents in various kinds of business, what I don't know. But I know that they were barefoot. And there were many times when someone would come that um, my mother would take things that we had and give them to them. And it, uh, it bothered me that, well, they didn't know how to um, 
to manage, or I didn't know what the problem was, but I, I wanted to do something about it. And that, that was what And when I mentioned um, contrast between the approach to helping people now and what it was when I entered the field, 